The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Our text for the sermon this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the black-bound pew Bible in front of you. 2 Samuel 12 is on page 263. 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
he then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David, and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together, and encamp against the city, and take it lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. I was eight years old, and my brother was 13. He's five years older than me. And I had money that I had saved from my allowance in the amount of $8. The year was 1991. It was right around the beginning of July, which meant July 4th weekend or holiday was coming up really soon. And as I said, I had $8. Now, in 1991, kids, $8 could buy you mountains of fireworks, all right? Untold riches you were sitting on with $8 in your pocket, all right? So much you could buy. So my brother comes to me with this genius idea as my dad is gone to work. We are home by ourselves. My dad and my mom both were gone to work. He comes to me and he says, you have money, I don't. It's always bad when your older brother doesn't have money and comes to you, the younger brother, with an idea, right? You're always going to get the short end of the stick on this. And so he told me, I have an idea. We should get on our bikes and we should ride down to the fireworks stand and buy fireworks. Now the fireworks stand was several miles away and it was across a major interstate which meant that an 8-year-old and a 13-year-old, a la E.T., would have to just go across a busy interstate, braving traffic to go to this fireworks stand. Not only that, I knew that I wasn't supposed to do it. So we got on our bikes, of course. I accepted the idea because my older brother told me to. That's, it, what I, that's the story, and I'm sticking with it, okay? All right? So we got on our bikes, and we rode the interstate, we got to the fireworks stand and came out with our haul, two grocery bags full of fireworks. We got balanced on our bikes, you know, going, going back home across the interstate. When we got home, I saw what I was hoping I would not see, but I saw it right when I walked through the door, 
and it was a flashing red light on a box next to the phone. For some of you, you know what I'm talking about. That was an answering machine you used to have when you were a kid, you know? Or maybe some of you were adults. But, uh, but anyway, you had this answering machine, and the phone would run through it, and, and if it didn't pick up in a certain number of rings, somebody would record a message on it. And I was hoping that when I hit play on that answering machine, it would not be my dad. Hopes were dashed. It was my dad. And all he was saying was, Michael, Michael, are you there? Michael, pick up. Michael, if you're there, pick up. Several messages just like that. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I turned to my 13-year-old brother. What do we do? And he said, just say we were outside jumping on the trampoline. That'll, you know, that's why we couldn't answer the phone. Sounded reasonable to me. So that's what I did. I called him up and I was like, oh yeah, we were outside jumping on the trampoline. When my dad suspects someone is lying to him, he begins an investigation. And when I say an investigation, Sherlock Holmes has nothing on my dad when he begins an investigation, when he suspects that you're lying to him. And so he goes outside and he investigates the trampoline and sees that there was grass still on the trampoline that wasn't bounced off when, like it should have been when we got there. And he connected all these dots that I never could have imagined. And I think looking back on it, he was just bluffing an eight-year-old kid who knew he would confess when he was pressed. Well, when he first asked me, obviously, I lied. But then when he pressed me with all the evidence... I folded like a cheap suitcase. I just, I did it. Here's the stash. We went to the fireworks stand. We got all these fireworks. And so my brother comes in, and I'm sitting on my mom's lap at eight years old going, I don't know what my brother's going to do. I'm terrified of what my brother's going to say. And so obviously, because I confessed, there was prices that I had to pay. We had to go back to the fireworks stand. I had to give back all my fireworks. But did I get my money back? No, I didn't get my money back. I lost $8, which in today's money is like a million. It's close. It's something like that. I mean, if I'd put that in Apple stock back then, who knows? <laughs> but because I had confessed, I didn't incur all of the wrath that was reserved for me had I continued with the lie. In our passage this morning, David is busted. He's caught. He thinks that he's gotten away with it. But as we saw in the last chapter, God knows, and he's sending Nathan the prophet to him. Now the question is, what will he do when he's caught? What's going to happen when it comes out? What does God want from him in that moment? What is going to make things better at that point in time, after David is caught red-handed in sin? What could possibly make this thing go away? We, we then have to also ask, what is it? that we do when we're caught in sin? What, what's our solution? What is it that God wants from us? I want you to remember that in the last couple of chapters, David has been really generous. Talking about before last chapter, in chapters 9 and 10, David has been incredibly kind. He, he found a crippled man who was the son, the grandson of a previous king. And instead of killing him, he brought him into his table and he said, you are going to eat from my table forever. He is being a generous steward of the Lord. And then in the, in the next chapter, in chapter 10, he goes out to the Ammonites, who should be his enemies, and he tries to bless the Ammonites through his generosity there. But then in chapter 11, things turned. Remember last chapter is the one where he goes up onto the roof 
and he sees across the way a lady bathing on the roof. And he decides, after investigation, he knows that this is Uriah the Hittite's wife. And he decides, in spite of that, that he is going to take her as his own wife and brings her to his house. And he hopes to keep it under secret, under the cover of darkness. But of course, as things transpire, she is pregnant in a way that David is clearly the father since her husband is out at war and hasn't been home for some time. So David, in an effort to cover his tracks, calls her husband back to himself and tells him, hey, why don't you go back home, hoping that that will cover over his sin. When Uriah refuses to do so, he sends a notice to his commanding officer by Uriah's own hand to put Uriah on the front lines and then move back from him so that Uriah dies and thus covers over David's sin. So he has not only committed this sin of adultery, but then he has murdered the husband of the woman he committed adultery with in an effort to cover his own sin. But you remember how the last chapter ends. It tells us, the author tells us that God had seen what David had done. And even though it had looked like he, got, he had gotten away with it, it says it displeased the Lord. Literally, it was evil in his sight. God has seen what is God going to do about it. Well, in the previous chapters, we have seen David's kindness up until chapter 11. But now we're going to see God's kindness on display. What does the kindness of God actually look like in the midst of David's sin? There's three truths about God's kindness that are on display in this passage. First, God's kindness is meant to bring about repentance. God's kindness is meant to bring about repentance. Look at verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. So Nathan comes to David, having this insider knowledge that God has given to him, and he presents to David what appears to David to be an actual case of something that is going on that he needs a decision on. But, David, but, but Nathan rather explains it to David like a parable. Now, understand what the purpose of parables are. Parables allow the teller of the parable to cut straight to the heart of the matter. A parable is a very important issue that comes to you in the package of a story. 
First of all, so that the person hearing it will accept the story. So if Nathan just comes in, guns a-blazing at David, he might get defensive. But you see, the parable allows David to react to the story. And then the purpose of a parable is that the meaning would be unveiled before the hearers so that they would then feel the punch or the impact of the story. Probably the most famous person to handle teaching this way would be Jesus himself. And we see that in the New Testament as Jesus tells parables to people that come in as a story and then pack a punch once they get on the inside of the walls. That's exactly what Nathan's doing. He comes to David with this parable that's sort of presented like a case, or at least David receives it that way, and he's going to receive the punch of the story. Now what David misses in the details of the story is that Nathan gives him some clues along the way as to what's going on. First of all, he says this man used to feed, his daughter used to feed this little ewe lamb. You see that back there in verse 3. It was like, or the lamb was like a daughter to him, he says. Now, the word for daughter in Hebrew is bath. You hear the word bathsheba, right? In there. So he, he's sort of dropping little crumbs, but you see, David is so wrapped in his sin and so ensnared in his sin, it flies right over his head. He doesn't pay atten- any attention to it. And David's hypocrisy is exposed because by the end of the passage, he criticizes the man who had no pity on the poor man. He says he was unwilling. That is, he, he, had, no, he had pity on his own flock, but he had no pity on the man he took the lamb from. Same word there, unwilling and pity. He had pity on his own flock, on a bunch of animals, but had no pity on the man that he was looking at. The problem is, the story is about David. The point that's being made is that David is the one who looked at the wife of another man and had no pity on the poor man. David then gives the punishment that this man should receive. He gives the man a fourfold punishment because of sin. Just maybe make an underline of that. You don't have to write in your Bible necessarily. Make an underline in your mind of David's punishment that he gives to this man for his sin. It's a fourfold punishment, and I think that's important. Then look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. So Nathan comes to David in the midst of this parable, and once David gives the verdict that this man should suffer, Nathan reveals the meaning of the parable. You're that man. Or as the King James puts it, which I think is how I memorized it growing up, thou art the man. It has so much more punch to it, doesn't it? They should just preserve that. Thou art the man. So David, in his pride, forgot that the Lord had given him everything and continued to give him everything. And not only that, would have given him much more things. Now, if you look at verse 8, verse 8 can kind of cause us a little bit of trouble. It says, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. The reason verse 8 gives us a little bit of trouble is because it sounds like what God is saying to David is, I'd have given you tons more wives if you'd asked for them. That's a little bit problematic, isn't it? Just a little bit. I don't think that's what God is actually advocating for, and I'll give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, in the text around all of this, in 1 Kings and, and several other passages, giving over the wives of the previous kings is not necessarily for marriage, but to communicate to the nation of Israel, this is the king. This also falls in the context of God telling to David that he gave him his master's house, and he gave him Israel and Judah, right? Meaning the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Israel, the, the tribe of Judah. So basically he's given him all 12 tribes and he's giving him his master's wives, communicating that the kingdom belongs to you. The other thing that I would submit for your consideration, which is why I don't think what God is saying here is, I'll give you tons more wives if you'd have asked for them, is remember how God created marriage. You remember this? God created marriage in the garden to be a man and a woman. One man with one woman for a lifetime. That's how he created marriage. Now, when this is brought up to Jesus in the New Testament, hey, Moses allowed us to divorce our wives. What say you? Jesus said, Moses allowed you to, have, to divorce your wives because of your hardness of heart. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is the reason that divorce happens is precisely because of the hardness of heart that has fallen upon humanity as a result of Adam's sin. But in the beginning, Jesus says, it was not so. So God's original intention for marriage is one husband with one wife for a lifetime, but since then, marriage has been perverted. And we've seen that this trail of breadcrumbs that David is left behind is him collecting wife after wife after wife. Which then when he gets up onto the roof of his house and he looks across the way and he sees another woman over there bathing, he naturally thinks, or maybe carnally thinks, well, I can take her too. Because nobody stopped me until now. 
But what frame of reference do we have to understand what David is doing, but that it is David's sin that has brought him to that point in his life and nothing else? If you have trouble with the idea of the Old Testament displaying plural wives, good. You should have a problem with that. And the New Testament makes sure that you do. But I think to answer that, we should consider what God's intention for marriage really is before the fall. And then understand all the perversions of marriage that happen are a result of the fall. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? So David's punishment from the Lord, as the Lord gives it to him, is an eye for an eye. Look at what it says in verses 9 and 10. He used the sword, and therefore the sword will not depart from his house. This is the beginning of the downfall of David's kingdom. It all comes crashing down after this point, and David will see war tearing his house apart, and it will begin with all the many children that he has had as a result of these many wives. Second, in verses 11 and 12, he took... And God will now take. He took the wife of somebody else. He did it in secret. God is now going to take the wives from him, but he's going to do it in public. All Israel is going to see this. But, but perhaps the most interesting one that might fly by you is this fourfold restitution that isn't explicitly named here. David gives a fourfold restitution. This guy that, that did this, committed this sin, should have to pay back fourfold. How many sons, I'll just let you guess one time, how many sons do you think David is going to watch die? Four. And it's all going to be between now and 1 Kings, when Solomon finally kills his own brother. David's eventually going to lose four sons. Obviously, he loses Bathsheba's here, first one. He'll lose Amnon. We'll see that beginning in chapter 13. He'll lose Absalom eventually, and finally Adonijah in 1 Kings, who tries to take the throne from Solomon. So the purpose of all God's punishment through the prophet Nathan is what? That's the question. David is caught in the midst of sin, and God sends Nathan the prophet to him. But what is the reason? Is it merely to deliver the verdict? He could have gone about that a number of different ways. He could have told David, I know what you did, and here's what's going to happen as a result of that. But that's not what he did. He sent Nathan to give him a parable, to masquerade the truth under a story so that David understood what was going on and really felt the punch of the conviction. Why did he do that? I think it was to bring about David's very simple response in verse 13. Look at it. What does he say? I have sinned against the Lord. What's the response to this punch? It's repentance. That is what repentance is. It's someone coming to a reckoning of their sin, realizing what it is, and not trying to escape it in any way, but actually owning it. I have sinned against the Lord. Do you notice what he doesn't say, which passes for repentance in our day and age? I'm sorry, Nathan, if I offended you. 
That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I'm sorry if you were offended by my actions. He doesn't say, well, do you see the reason why? Did, did she know what she was doing? She was on top of a roof. Does she not know she could be seen by me? I mean, when you really think about it, there were a lot of reasons why. Do you know what? If I have to hear nagging one more time from my wives, my ten other wives, or however many he's got, none of that. He doesn't give any excuses for why the sin happened. He doesn't make Nathan or God the one that was offended responsible for his sin. He doesn't say any of that. He says very simply, you're right. I've sinned against the Lord. But he goes on to say more than is even recorded here in 1 Samuel. In Psalm 51, which is a psalm entirely devoted to his repentance when he's caught in this sin by Nathan the prophet, he says this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just a few verses. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In verse 16 of Psalm 51, he says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What is coming after David in the midst of his sin is the grace and mercy and kindness of God, bringing him to the point of repentance. And what is repentance? It's not just saying, I have sinned. It's a broken and contrite heart. It's a confession of sin that comes from a heart that is truly remorseful. But what's amazing about this passage, both the passage in 2 Samuel and the psalm, Psalm 51, is that it reiterates to us that the one who comes to God with a broken heart over his sin and says, I have sinned, God will not reject. God will forgive. You understand what's, what's at stake here. David's sin deserves the death penalty. Leviticus 20, verse 10, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, literally happened here, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So, shall, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Understand, the concern in the law of Moses to put to death the adulterer and the one who he's committing adultery with is that the evil would be purged from Israel. The evil person who is seeking sin after sin after sin would be purged from Israel. But you understand how that differs with what is happening with David. David has committed the sin. Why isn't he put to the sword? Because he has a broken and contrite heart. It's the opposite of the evil person in Israel. 
It's the person who is actually repentant as he comes to the Lord. So the Lord, what does He do? In response to David's brokenness, in response to his contrite heart, and his open confession, I have sinned, the Lord makes the decision to put away David's sin and not execute him. Although God's people are those who are purchased by the blood of Jesus, we can't lose sight of the fact that the Lord still cares about sin and is still producing repentance in us from the consequences of sin. You understand there's points in all of our lives where our sin is sitting in front of our eyes. There's nothing we can do to avoid it. It is there. And perhaps we have even begun to feel the discipline from the Lord because of our sin. When you know you're facing discipline from the Lord because of your sin, it's when not only are you feeling the bad consequences, but what comes to your mind is this unconfessed sin that is still dwelling there, that you've never dealt with, that you've made every attempt to cover over or to hide. And the Lord, by causing these things to you, by bringing this discipline to you, is bringing to your mind this sin that remains unconfessed. In the event that there is this unrepentant sin that is coming to your mind in the midst of tragedy and turmoil and frustration, and you wonder to yourself, is this a consequence of my sin? The answer is yes. But, but you see, don't despair. Because the conviction that you're feeling through these consequences, this conviction that you're feeling of this sin, is the kindness of God making you aware of it. As a friend of mine once said, take heart, Christian, for he only reveals sin to his own. It's his kindness that's coming to you. But of course, you have two choices. And that's presented to us in the New Testament, in the book of 1 John. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just as David does here, we are free to, in the light of our sin and the consequences thereof, to go to the Lord and say, I have sinned against you, O God. In our brokenness of spirit to confess our sin. And he promises us to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's over. Just as Nathan says there to David. He's put it away. It's done. That's it? I'm not the only one, surely, that looks at that and goes, Really? That's it? And the answer in the New Testament is, That's it. It's over. It's done. Or... We can refuse to confess. We can say to God, that's not sin. I don't think that's sinful, really. I mean, you know what I was going through. I'm sorry if you were offended. To which John tells us in 1 John 1.10, the very next verse, if we say we have not sinned, 
We make him a liar and his word is not in us. How do we make God a liar? Well, what would have happened if David said, that wasn't me. No, I'm not the man. Is Nathan there by his own volition? No, Nathan is there because God sent him there. God is saying to to David, you have committed this sin. God may be saying to you, you have committed this sin. So what what are you saying to God if you say, "That, that, that wasn't sin? You make God a liar and his word is not in you. Now that said, the confession, easy enough. Broken and contrite heart, maybe a little harder. But second, God's kindness may mean we bear lifelong consequences. God's kindness to us may mean that we bear lifelong consequences. It doesn't mean that it's over. Look at verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child is yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to the servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will no longer, or he will not return to me. So it's apparent that David's confession of sin has not only been between him and the Lord, but his servants obviously know as well. They know what David did, and they know who this child really is, that it is David's. And so they come to him in verse 17. They try to pick him up. They try to get him to eat in verse 18. They ultimately have to deliver him the news after fearing to do so because, listen, if he finds out that the child is dead, he might kill himself. So they are the ones that have to deliver him the news. And upon discovering that the child is dead, David does actually the opposite. He arose, he washed, he anointed, he changed himself, he went, he worshipped, and he ate. And his reasoning is simple. You see, while, he, while the child was still alive, David is pleading on the Lord because he knows that the Lord is gracious. That's what he says in verse 22. He reiterates it over and again. Even though God has delivered him this sentence, David still understands God to be ultimately gracious to him. Why? Because he told him, David, I'm not going to kill you. But you are still going to have to bear the marks of punishment You see, even though David is pleading with the Lord, he's trusting in his graciousness, God is still true to his word. But David is trusting that he's going to be gracious, that he's going to be kind. I love Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, There is therefore now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think you can take that one verse and you can preach the entire gospel from that one singular verse. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Condemnation, that is what we deserve because of our sin. That's precisely what Adam's sin has done to us. That's precisely what brings David to the point of the roof where he collects the wife that he collects, where it comes to the roof and he looks at this woman and he decides to take her. It's the reason that you and I indulge in sin every day. It is the reason that we deserve condemnation is because we have sinned against God. It's right there in the verse. But now there is something that has changed as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. Namely, that there is therefore now no condemnation. As a result of Jesus' death, He has died the death that I deserve. He faced God's wrath on my behalf. So there is therefore now no condemnation because of what Christ has done. But is it for everybody? He says specifically, for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning, for those who have placed their trust in Christ for eternal life and forgiveness of sin. For those who have placed only their trust in only Christ for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Is there no condemnation? And what does no condemnation mean? That you're free from eternal punishment? And instead, you're given eternal life. The entire gospel is packed into that one singular verse in Scripture. But I think, Christian, you have to understand the difference between God's condemnation of you and His just punishment for your sin because you are His child. In other words, the difference between His condemnation and His discipline. They're two different things. We don't feel the condemnation from God for those who are in Christ, meaning we will not face eternal consequences for our sin precisely because Christ has died for us. However, in the midst of this life, we will face God's discipline because He is our Father. See, God's condemnation is eternal and it's inescapable for those who are outside Christ. So sinner, you stand and you will stand before God on judgment day, in other words. When this life is over, you will stand before God and you will give an account for your sin. And between now and then, you may or may not feel any conviction over that sin or even realize it, that it is sin until you stand before Him on judgment day. But the word to you if right now you are feeling conviction over your sin, is repent and trust Christ. That's the message. It's very simple. The message of the gospel is, do you sense the sin that is between you and God? Confess it to Him, just as David models for you here. Be broken and contrite over your sin. Confess it to Him. Own it to Him. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. And what do you do then? You trust 
that Christ's death on your behalf is enough. Wait, but, but then do I have to go out and do I have to pay penance? Maybe I have to give a whole bunch of money to the poor. Or maybe i got to give a whole bunch of money to this church. Or maybe i got to go and say ten prayers of X, Y, or Z. Maybe I've got to do Hail Marys and rosaries and all these kinds of things. I've got to pay this penance to make up for it. No! That's you providing your own forgiveness. You trust. Maybe that's it. I just confess it, and then I just trust that what Christ did is enough for me? Yes. That's it. Trust that it's enough. Now, on what basis does God come to Jesus, come to David and say, hey, your sin is forgiven. He put it away. He's put your sin away. It's just that easy? On what basis? How does God get the right to do that? David deserved death here. He deserved the death penalty. Why does this poor child get death and David doesn't get death? Why is that? Why does David not get that penalty? He deserved death. You understand, they all deserve death. You understand, we all deserve death. David's not getting out scot-free. It's not as though God just says, well, David, we'll just keep this between us. I'll pull this little rug up and I'll just sweep it under here and nobody will see it. No. David's going to have to pay consequences that everybody's going to see, actually. God's not sweeping this under the rug. What do we find out in the New Testament in Hebrews 9.15? Therefore, he is the mediator, meaning Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the eternal promise, uh, promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression, listen to this, committed under the first covenant. That's the Old Testament. How is it that people in the Old Testament were forgiven of their sin? The only way David could be forgiven right there in front of Nathan with just a statement, God's put it away. The only way David could be forgiven there under the first covenant is by God placing the justice that David deserved on the shoulders of Christ. David, instead of killing you and sending you to hell like you deserve, I'm going to kill my own son on your behalf. So you don't look at David's son and go, oh, David's son is suffering the consequences of David's sin. No. The consequences of David's sin are placed on God's son, Jesus, on the cross. See, Jesus' death covers the sins of those that are committed under the first covenant. Yes, even David's. That's God's condemnation. But God's discipline is what a loving father does for his children because they're sinful. See, David still has to bear the earthly consequences of his sin. It's not a result of God's disdain for him. It's not that God hates him. Or despises him. It's actually because of God's care and his love for David. See, in God's love for David, he allows him to bear the scars of suffering caused by his sin. 
It's an indelible mark. It's a mark that cannot be removed on David, on his very soul, the death of his children, the tearing apart of his household. It's an indelible mark. It cannot be removed, and it's a sign of God's love. He allows him to bear the scars of suffering that are caused by his sin. In the same way that when Jesus rises from the dead, He allows His own Son to continue to bear the marks of your and my sin so that we will always remember what it cost God to pay for our sin. Many of you can relate. You bear scars deep inside, perhaps scars that no one knows about precisely because of your sin. Maybe it's even just your Conscience. Continue, you hear that nagging voice? These are sins long repented of, sins long forgotten, and yet day by day they continue to nag you to, to no end. You continue to think about those mistakes that you made. How could you be so stupid? Or maybe there's scars on the surface that you can't get rid of. They're signs of a former life. And everybody that looks at you knows exactly who you are or who you were. You can't get rid of them. And you think to yourself, why doesn't God just, once I, once I say Jesus' name, once I repent of my sin, once I trust in Christ, once I go through baptism, why doesn't He just come down and just remove all those scars from me so that they're not there anymore, so that no one knows, and that I don't always have to go in front of people and have to explain who I used to be and who I am now, and I don't have to do any of those things anymore. Why, why doesn't he just erase all of that stuff? It would make it so much easier on me. Here's what you've got to remember. Memory of God's discipline of you is important for future holiness. Memory of God's discipline is important for future holiness. God is making you into something. And all of those scars have meaning. I look back on the times when I was disciplined by my father. Like the time I took the firecrackers. There's a whole lot of others that I'm not going to tell you about right now. And I look back on those decisions that I made. And I look back on the many whippings that I received as a result of those bad decisions. And you know what, I, I realized that the scars from those emotional scars or pains or bruises or hurts or whatever they were, faded over time. But you know what I never did? Never did that again. I lost my $8. I never made that mistake a second time. Maybe some of the things I did do a second time, but I didn't do them a third time. Because those marks of discipline reminded me yet again, I need to be humble. I need to learn. I need to grow. I don't need to do that anymore. That by the Lord's side is the best place to be. It's a mark of humility. But we understand the last thing very quickly. God's kindness is not contingent on performance. God's kindness is not contingent on performance. We see in the rest of the passage, I'm not going to reread it, but David has 
another child with Bathsheba. That's Solomon. Solomon is actually the fourth child that he has with Bathsheba, not the, not the first after the death of the first one. Solomon is the fourth child with Bathsheba. And what that means is that the author is actually drawing your attention to something very important, that God continued to give David an heir. He doesn't remove him from the throne in spite of his egregious sin. It's abundantly clear that in spite of David's sin, God has not wavered one iota in the promise that he made to David. He doesn't revoke the promise in any way, but he continues to be faithful to the promises that he's made to David. Not only that, but what happens right after that is David then goes into battle. All of this is taking place while David's supposed to be at battle with the Ammonites. Now, you would think that if God was really mad and he really wanted to get back at David, he'd give Israel a loss or maybe make Israel subject to the Ammonites. But that's not what he does. He actually gives the Ammonites into the hands of Israel because there's a message communicated at the very end of this passage that God's grace is not contingent on David's performance. That's not how kindness is measured to you either. God is not sitting up in heaven watching your sins and going, oh, well, now I've got him. Now I'm, now I'm really coming after him. His discipline is always meant to bring you back to him. Always. And what he's giving to you is not condemnation. How do I know that? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now the question has God made you aware of sin? Are you sitting there now and thinking of sin you've committed? There's a temptation to be drawn into despair, brokenheartedness, thoughts of depression, and all kinds of other things. But I think the gospel says to you the opposite. Take heart. Dear child, for God only reveals sin to his own. Confess, repent, trust in Christ for forgiveness. It's that easy. But maybe you've never trusted in Christ before. You don't even know what's involved in that. Do it now before it's too late. Call on the name of God. Ask Him for forgiveness. Ask Him to reveal your sin to you. Ask Him to give you the hope to trust in Christ for eternal life. Be baptized. Come to church. Take part with us, fellow sinners, who have at one point in time or another realized that same thing. See, we're all in the same boat. Every single one of us deserves death. But it's because of the death of his son, Jesus, that we're given eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our hearts that you would reveal sin to us, that you would allow us the grace the mercy, the kindness from your hand to trust in Christ all the more. I pray you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.